Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today I'm talking to Kendra Preston Leonard, author of Music for the Kingdom of Shadows, Cinema Accompaniment in the Age of Spiritualism. We might call movies made before the advent of the talkies in 1927 silent films, but for the audience, they were certainly not silent. Live orchestras and solo instrumentalists accompanied early films, adding evocative music drawn from pre-existent and newly composed sources. For this project, Dr. Leonard examines the music and musicians that accompanied movies that she calls spirit films, and along the way, finds unexpected connections between film accompanists, mediums, and spiritualism. Thank you for joining me today, Kendra, to talk about your work. It's my pleasure. Um, before we even get into the topic of this really fascinating study, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to talk a little bit about how this book was actually published. You have you are have an extensive CV of uh, scholarly publications. You've got four books, an edition of Louise Talma's songs. You've co-edited collected editions, all of that. So you are certainly a scholarly author. But yet for this particular book, you chose not to go through um, a conventional press. Um, and instead, it's been published through Humanities Commons. Can you talk to me a little bit about why you decided to do that and also what it means to publish a book um, through Humanities Commons? There were several factors that made me decide to publish this way. And because I had published with traditional presses, I could draw on that experience when I was making the decisions about this project. Initially, I thought that this project would result in a long-form article. And as I did more and more research on it, it occurred to me that the readership for this work would not be strictly limited to music scholars or film scholars, but could have a much wider audience. And at the same time, that meant that I had to make sure that I was adjusting how the book would reach its audience, how eventually what became the book would reach a, an audience that would be interested in it. So as I worked on this and it became obvious that it was a book project more than an article project, I started thinking about the different ways that I might publish it or different publishers that I might approach. And I've worked with a couple of different scholarly publishers in the past. And while my experiences with them from the editorial side have been outstanding for the most part, there are some issues that I have with traditional publishing. One is cost. The cost of the average academic book right now runs around $100. And some of my books are even higher than that. Um, I think one of my books right now is selling for $140. And while some libraries might be able to afford that, smaller institutions' libraries will not. And certainly most individuals will not be able to spend that kind of money on a scholarly book. So I wanted to look into options where the cost was either significantly reduced or the book was made available for free through open access. And as I spoke with publishers about this, I realized that most of them, despite saying, oh, we'd love to make our books more accessible to people on a financial basis or anything else, were not really putting their money where their mouths were in, in terms of that. They would say, oh, well, we could do a, a Kindle edition, but it'll be $50. Certainly that's affordable. And, and that's not really affordable for a lot of people. So I decided that I would use a relatively new process that I had become familiar with by being a reviewer, and that is using open peer review. A lot of journals are now working in open peer review, particularly in literature and studies outside of music, where an article or chapters are posted to a website. Users are able to either log in anonymously or using their names or a created handle, a username. And they're able to offer comments chapter by chapter. Um, and then within the chapters, they can comment on things as, as small as certain phrases, saying, I don't think this phrase works. Or maybe if you move this paragraph later, or have you read this particular source? 
these comments are all collected in the margins where the material is, is posted. Um, and I was able to put all of my chapters online using this form. This is actually a, a plugin for WordPress-based blogs called Comment Press. It's been used by a bunch of different journals and other people who are publishing online. So I had a number of scholars reading this work. And while I knew who some of them were and what their fields were, others preferred to remain anonymous until the end of the project when they would send me a note saying, by the way, I reviewed chapter whatever. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that it, my comments were helpful and things like that. So my chapters went through multiple revisions the same way they would with a scholarly press, which, of course, sends out your book, your materials to readers to get feedback. And once I felt that I had edited and revised to the point where I was answering queries from anonymous readers as well as known readers, I sent it out one more time to readers that I knew uh, and asked them for a critical read. And they did that. They provided me with excellent scholarly feedback, and I finally arrived with a finished manuscript. I wanted to make sure that the manuscript was easily findable by users. And so I didn't want to just put it up on my own website or create a standalone website for it. Uh, I wanted it to be indexed. I wanted it to have a digital object identification number, a DOI, so that people could cite it easily, so that people could give that number to someone else in the field that they thought was useful and they'd be able to find it. So I had done some work on humanities commons before. And for people who are not familiar with humanities commons, it was initially built by the Modern Language Association as a repository for scholarly work. You can put your papers, your articles, your presentations in their, their repository. They're assigned a DOI number if they don't already have one from their original publisher and they're made available for download to anyone. So I decided that Humanities Commons was where I wanted to put this, and I decided that I wanted to do it in two different formats to make it accessible to as many readers as possible. So one of those formats was to make it on a website, just to, to make a site that was the book, to make it an ebook with its own identifiable URL. Humanities Commons allows scholars to host multiple websites on Humanities Commons for free. So you don't have ads. You don't have to worry really about maintenance for your site. It's all WordPress-based. It's very intuitive to use. I have my own personal scholarly site listed or hosted rather on, on a WordPress blog at Humanities Commons. I know colleagues who put blogs there for their students and their classes to use to develop course materials and things like that. So I decided, one, that I would build a website on Humanities Commons that would be the ebook. And this allowed me to include all sorts of links and images to other sites and other information, to recordings, to images, things like that. And then I used yet another WordPress plugin called Anthologize, which collected all of the chapters from the ebook into a PDF. It retains the links. It retains all of the images. It retains most of the formatting. It's not as pretty as a book that had been laid out by a production editor at a professional publishing house would be but it is certainly very functional. It's very usable. Uh, and that, that creates a PDF, so users can download that if they want, and that they can read on any device where they can read a PDF. So if someone wanted to read it on a Kindle or a tablet instead of on their desktop computer, they could do so, and it would make it very accessible. So that's how it, it came to be published. Uh, I published it in November of 2019. And one of the nice things about publishing it on Humanities Commons is that I can also see how many times the PDF edition has been downloaded and how many users have visited the site, which gives me an idea of how well I have done in sort of marketing it, if you will, even though it is completely free and making it known to the scholarly community and to general readers who are interested in the topics of the book. Well, I have to say, <clears throat> I mean... I really would prefer to have a book in my hands, but for music publishing, there is something so nice about being able to do as I could with your book, click on a link and hear the music right then, or see, go to a full copy of a piece of sheet music as also happened in this book and uh, really be able to see, see things more in context or actually hear it. I, 
I hate to give up the book, but because I, I love the tactile materiality of it, but there, there isn't a lot of ways in which it makes much more sense to read a music book that does have examples like that um, in a, in any kind of format like this. And I certainly found it very easy to read. I both read it on my iPad and my computer and found both very easy to read and, um, you know, really worked well. I'm glad to hear that. Um. Did you find in your, you know, you described the review process, since you do have experience in um, sort of conventional presses, did you find the review process to be, I don't know, better, worse, different? I mean, how, how did that go for you? I found it to be better. It was more interactive. With conventional publishing, the editor sends your book out to selected readers and you get back you know, two or three reports from those readers with a long list of things that they think you might want to change or improve or remove from your book. With the more granular approach that Comment Press allows, where people can can comment on specific phrases and specific paragraphs, I found that there was a lot more detail from the reviewers and also that the reviewers, when the reviewers found something that they disagreed with or thought was problematic, for whatever reason, and this may have been the reviewers who got involved with this project uh, or, or the nature of the reviewing, they tended, instead of simply being negative, they offered alternatives. Here's an alternative source. Um, and in one case, a reviewer was reading it and she said, the source you read is really good, but it's considered a foundational source at this point, And you need much more recent sources that build on this particular author. So rather than simply saying the sources are out of date, as a reviewer might in conventional publishing where reviewers' reports are meant to be quite short, uh, re- the reviewers here could say, this, this reference is really out of date. Here are some names you can check that, that have more recent scholarship that build on this one that you have that you probably want to use. I also found that there was a good amount of, of uh, back and forth. So there was more of a dialogue in the review process because reviewers could tell if I had commented on their comments, asking questions, saying thank you, asking for clarifications. Some reviewers came back more than once saying, this is great. Have you also considered this? Or the way you've changed it actually muddies things. Can you try to clarify in this kind of way? So I felt that the review process was a lot better. It was more detailed. It was a little bit more friendly. It was more interactive. Well, that's very interesting. And I appreciate you taking time away from discussing the book to talk about this publishing aspect. So I think that, um, you know, as we, as all scholars become more and more concerned about accessibility and about the public reach of their work, um, this kind of publishing is probably going to become more common, not less. So thank you for, for discussing this with me. Of um, course. So let's turn, let's turn to the book now. Um, and wh- how did you come to the topic of this, of this uh, project? I've been working in silent film music for a while now, and I have always been interested in the idea of how the supernatural is scored on screen. A number of years ago, I, I did work on, how the ghost of old Hamlet is characterized musically in film adaptations of the play, things like that. So I was working on a collection of silent film at the university of North Texas. And I kept seeing all these titles that seemed to reference ghosts and phantoms and spirits. And I am still not entirely sure why this particular collection had so many pieces relative to other titles in the collection, but they had a lot. And so I decided to write about that. It was, it was very interesting to me, and I kind of wanted to see how the development of the ghost on film and the music for ghosts on film progressed from influences on silent film music through silent film music into early talkies. So I decided to start looking at other collections. Uh, after the University of North Texas, I looked at collections at the University of Colorado Boulder and some other places that have silent film music collections and started documenting and taking notes on all of these pieces. And of course, I started watching as many movies from the silent era that we have still available that include ghosts or spirits as topics. And I found some really interesting things. I I found, I thought that these films would be 
predecessors to the horror film that, that we have today, but they weren't. There were two separate tracks, really, of development for films involving the supernatural. One did lead to the development of the horror film with jump scares and things like that. The other developed into what was called the spirit drama or the spirit film, which had sort of tenuous um, links with spiritualism and the idea that spirits are present in order to take care of unfinished business on earth or to protect someone uh, and, and things like that. So that really sort of kicked things off. And I, I went down a very long and fascinating rabbit hole full of movies and images and even advertisements for these films. So one of the things I found really fascinating about the book was the connections that you found between accompanists, mediums, and spiritualism at writ large and these movies. So before we dig into these really interesting connections, maybe you could give our listeners just a quick thumbnail about spiritualism as, um, and as a background to what we'll be talking about. Sure. Spiritualism developed in the early 19th century, and there were three sisters, the Fox sisters, who claimed that they were communicating with a spirit in their house through rapping sounds. It turned out later, the, the sisters confessed that they were actually cracking their toes to make these noises. But this kicked off an entire religion in which people were seeking to communicate with the dead and that they believed in an afterlife in which people could communicate with the living either through certain techniques, uh, such as using technology like a, a spirit trumpet, which was a, a long horn that distorted the sound of the voice, that spirits could interfere with uh, earthly technology, making a record player play, things like that, or through spirit mediums. And spirit mediums were individuals who claimed to have a special connection to the afterlife. They were mostly women. They were often young. Uh, they were often ill. Women who were not well or not robust in their health were considered to have better links with the spirit world, perhaps because they were thought of as being closer to death themselves. So the, the primary um, manifestation of spiritualism was the seance. The seance was an event in which people hoping to hear from deceased loved ones would gather in a dark room with a spirit medium who would then attempt to contact these relatives for them. The seance often included music. It included hymn singing, which is something I didn't know until I had started working on this project. Uh, sometimes the medium would disappear behind a curtain, which was called a, uh, a cabinet for the medium, so that the people who were hoping to hear from the, their their loved ones couldn't see the medium inside the cabinet. The medium would create sounds or manipulate objects to make the seance sitters think that they were hearing or seeing otherworldly things. Spiritualism also had churches and these differed from seance meetings in that there were large congregational meetings in which people preached about the existence of a pleasant afterlife, which they called Summerland. There was singing of hymns. These were often traditional hymns from Christian churches repurposed with new words that fit the spiritualist mission. They preached about becoming spirit mediums, becoming open to receiving communications from the dead, and they uh, held events in which a spirit medium would attempt to contact many, many spirits um, for guidance or advice in the presence of a larger audience. And um, so we've got sort of that spiritualist piece. So let's add now the piece about um, the accompaniment to silent films in general. So as I mentioned in the opening, silent films were not silent at all. So when we see them, we never hear noise usually, but actually there was always music going on at least. Um, so can you talk about uh, the process of accompanying um, silent films? Who did it and how did they uh, get, you know, what music were they using? I guess, were they playing a score or how else was, how was that music generated? 
Music for silent film was created in several different ways. Accompanists often for smaller theaters, you often had an accompanist who played the piano as organs became available. Sometimes they played the organ at medium to larger size theaters. You had ensembles. These were always called orchestras, regardless of the size. So sometimes you would have a theater orchestra that was piano, clarinet, cello. That was a common combination. So you would have musicians uh, or music directors for the ensembles selecting music. Music starting about 1910, uh, after most of the, the cinemas had decided that, yes, having music was a good thing and did not distract audiences from the visuals of the film. Music for the cinema was a booming business. Uh, magazines and journals and publishers all started publishing short character pieces that had descriptive titles. So you would have a piece called Hurry, or you would have a piece called Dramatic Agitato, or you might have a piece called Romance. And these pieces were very short. They were highly characteristic. And cinema accompanists could compile a set of pieces to accompany a particular film. You also had accompanists who improvised their scores, and this is what people commonly think of. I think when they think of silent film and someone accompanying the film, improvisers often had to play a film cold. They had to accompany a film without ever having seen it before or even knowing the plot. So they had to improvise as they went watching the film. As they accompanied the film over and over, the improvisation became more solid and turned into a score with motifs for different characters or events and things like that. Finally, really big budget scores sometimes had original scores composed or compiled for them by known uh, cinema composers. So in this case, you would have a score for a full orchestra and then a number of variations of that so that smaller orchestras could play it as well, or even just a pianist or an organist. And these were original scores. So a composer would you know, start at the beginning with the film and write themes for the entire film that were meant to be played with the film. This doesn't mean, though, that in every cinema, the accompanist played what the film's composer intended. Sometimes the, the accompanist didn't like the score that the production company sent out with its movies. So they would come up with something different. Sometimes uh, the production companies would include cue sheets, which listed pieces to play from extant repertoire that the accompanist could follow. And sometimes they would follow some of these and then replace others. And sometimes they would come up with their own themes or motifs for some of these cues. So when you went to a cinema and saw and listened to a movie, say on Monday at the big cinema, you might hear an accompaniment by composer A played by a 40-piece orchestra. You might go to a second cinema uh, and hear the score played by just an organist, and it would be completely different for the film. Then you might go back to the first cinema with a different orchestra, and they could be playing something entirely different. So it's very hard for us to know exactly what was played with what film at what time, although we can guess for some things. And we have some records where cinema accompanists have left behind lists or notes of what they played with particular films. Thank you for all that background. So now let's dig into to your... I know it's um, a lot. <laughs> no, but it's important though, because I think it's not the kind of thing... First, to put those two worlds together, I think is pretty unusual. And so it's I think it's unlikely that readers uh, or listeners to this podcast would know about both, <laughs> certainly, and maybe neither. So this is that's important, I think, to, to establish that. So one of the things that was really interesting about your book is you found connections that I would never have dreamed were there between um, sort of the role and um, gendered expectations of the film accompanist and the medium. Um, so can you talk about those connections? One of the things that, that really struck me was how in the early part of the 20th century, certain roles were, were gendered in often kind of roundabout ways. So cinema accompanists, especially after 1918, when lots and lots of cinema orchestras were shut down so that the men could go off to fight in the First World War, uh, were women. 
And one of the images that we see in cartoons and, and parodies of silent film is a woman playing the piano or the organ in, in front of the movie. Um, so one of the things that, that also made women successful as cinema accompanists was that the repertoire that women were supposed to learn in the late 19th and early 20th century was short character pieces. They were not always expected to be playing the same kinds of quote-unquote serious classical music that men were. I'm not saying that they didn't play that repertoire, but that they were often encouraged into parlor songs, short pieces that depicted nature or emotions and things like that. So when it came time for women to accompany silent films, they had this repertoire of character pieces already in their fingers, so to speak. The pieces that they'd had to learn because they were women all of a sudden became the pieces that the accompanist had to know. So they already knew the pieces for spring love or wild chase, things like that. Um, and at the same time, mediums had to um, present themselves in a, in a similarly gendered way. They tended to have to be uh, particularly feminine. They had to have certain accomplishments and speech. They had to have learned a little bit about the ways in which women were expected to behave, uh, particularly among the upper class. And one of the things that, that struck me all about this is that the women themselves, both cinema accompanists and mediums, are kind of hidden physically. The medium is taken away behind the screen or becomes a manifestation of a spirit as the cinema musician is sort of hidden in the pit or to the side of the screen. And yet they're providing sonic material that is meaningful to the event. So um, it, it does seem like a, a sort of strange combination, the, the cinema accompanist and the medium, but there are all sorts of things that, that tie them together. Um, and a, another aspect of that is that cinemas often also hired women accompanists because it made the cinema seem more respectable than if they hired men for whatever reason. It, it gave this idea that there was uh, a chaperone present at the cinema. And women spiritualists had the same sort of thing. There was an imprimatur of respectability when the spiritualist was or the medium was a woman. Um, you argue, I think, that there are connections between the practices or beliefs of spiritualism, whether you're talking about sort of the movement or the religion and the way that spirits are depicted or um, manifest themselves in these spirit films. Did you find also a connection between the sort of sonic signifiers that a medium would use to uh, suggest that spirits were um, available or there or whatever, um, and the way that um, music was used um, as, as part of the accompaniment to these um, to these films? Yes. One of the, the great things about doing this research and digging into this was the way that I found that the sound of the seance informed the sound of vaudeville and informed film in terms of use with spirits. And then the film in turn sort of went back and, and informed the way mediums were creating sound. So films that featured spirits needed music that met public expectations for what those spirits sounded like or what it felt like when we saw a spirit. So that was established using pieces from the stage where there are, where there are spirits um, and the sounds of the seance. So at seances where ghosts spoke and sang through spirit trumpets, these long cones that muted and distorted sound or played instruments, those sounds were replicated in the silent, silent cinema. Um, sounds had to be sort of, um, eerie and really unique, not sounds that we would hear from a normal orchestra or someone performing pieces in a recital. So we have a lot of tremolo and we have a lot of playing on the violin at the bridge, sol ponticello. So it made this very eerie sound. 
Um, sometimes cinema ghosts were accompanied by glass harmonicas, which produce this very eerie, otherworldly sound that sort of distorts pitch um, and, and things like that. So there were those aspects. And there was also the idea that you could use the piano or instruments and, and the organ to create rapping sounds for spirits, like the Fox sisters had said that they were communicating with spirits through those sounds. And you could use, um, you could use the sounds of broken glass to represent the actions of a spirit. So sometimes the accompanist would, you know, stop playing the piano or organ for a moment to use these sort of improvised percussion pieces using glass or China sort of crashing into its, itself. Um, we also start to get the, the stinger, right? The, uh, the sudden loud chord that makes everyone jump that shows the presence or, or tells us that there's the presence of something unnatural nearby or that we were startled by things. So organists used uh, these stingers and, and sort of creepy melodies in the minor key and things like that, that were also coming out of the seance. Um, so certain instruments that were used in the seance came to represent spirits in the cinema. So things like the flute and the clarinet and the horn were especially popular because these were sounds that seance, um, seance participants would have heard being created by the unseen medium and things like that. Do you think, especially very early in the history of cinema, so we're talking about the late 1890s, early 1900s, do you think that when people went to these movies and this very new technology, do you think they thought of this as part of the spirit realm, you know, that this was sort of magical or that they were seeing some kind of manifestation of spirits, no matter what the the um, the content of the film itself, but just the idea of being able to see the same thing over and over again um, in this new technology. Do you, do you get a sense that there was some connection there as well in the eyes of, in, in the eyes uh, and minds of the audience? There was certainly the idea that with the cinema, no one was ever really dead. If you were captured on film, that gave you a kind of permanence even after death, which gives you kind of an afterlife in this world. So I think there was that idea Early, very early cinema, 1895 and, and, and times like that, very early cinema really loved to play with the abilities of technology to create things that seem supernatural. So there are lots and lots of films which are which use stop motion animation to show skeletons dancing or show a conjurer disappearing in a puff of smoke or devils coming out of a cauldron or, you know, walking through walls, things like that were very common in the early cinema and, and were used, of course, in, in later cinema as well, simply because it was a technology that could do that. Prior to this, to the moving picture, of course, we had spirit photography, spirit photography, which almost everyone knew to be a fraud from the very beginning, purported to take pictures of spirits near living people. And you can find all sorts of great spirit photography online if you're interested in looking these up. So people who were hoping and desperate, you know, to know if their beloved one was still near them in a spirit form would go to spirit photographers and have images made. Um, but mostly it was, it was taken as an entertainment. Um, it was condemned as a fraud fairly early on, but that technology was still very tempting to use in interesting ways to depict the idea of spirits being present. And so that transfers into the, into the motion picture. There was, um, there was a certain amount of, of fun and playfulness in the early spirit films that become more serious in some cases when we get to longer feature spirit dramas and things like that. Some of the earliest spirit films are about mischievous ghosts who pull people's chairs away, right, as they're about to sit, or take the clothes off their back, or make their food dance around on the table, you know, manipulated by unseen hands and things like that. So there was an amount of levity, I think. Um, I don't think anyone thought necessarily that the, the spirit film was something that captured real magic, but it did interact with the philosophy of 
spiritualism and the idea that the dead remain somehow involved in, in the lives of the living. You provide four case studies in one chapter about different films and their accompaniment. And I don't think we really have time to go through all four, but I wanted to direct your attention to the first of those examples called Ghost of the Jungle. And I was particularly struck by that example because the film itself was censored. So it not only gives us an example of the music, um, which you were able to document at least to a certain extent, but also how local morality codes affected silent film. So I was wondering if you could sort of talk us through that example, kind of highlighting both the music and the kinds of sources that you have that are are available to you through the archive to try to reconstruct at least something about the accompaniment of these films, but then also looking at Ghost of the Jungle as, uh, excuse me, yeah, Ghost of the Jungle um, as an example of a film that was censored. This was a fascinating example. And at first I had no idea what I was finding because I kept finding information in the archives and most of the archives I use were online. There are a lot of digital archives of magazines and uh, trade periodicals and things like that online for, for uh, early film industry. So I found this, this film ghost of the jungle, which was made in 1916. Um, and I kept finding things that were really conflicting and images that were conflicting for it. And finally, I realized that it had been censored. The entire plot or a significant portion of the plot had been changed. So in one version of the film, a man leaves a woman to die and her ghost rises from her body and leads her lover to his death. And in the censored version of the film, her spirit rises from her body and then returns to it. So she lives um, and, and his life ends in a different way. So this is a two reel film, which meant that it's, it's probably only 30 or 35 minutes long, 35 minutes long, but it is a, a great case study because we have the spirit working in two different ways in a benign way where she returns to her body and in a more malevolent way where she gets revenge on her, on the lover that has abandoned her. Um, so a lot of the contemporary criticism of this mentioned how heavily the supernatural played into this and uh, motion picture world wrote that supernatural and life after death enter into a large measure in the film. Uh, but certain towns or states didn't like the way the, the film worked. Um, and so, and so they, they changed it and this was not uncommon while the the rating system had not yet come into play um, at this point. There were boards of morality often comprised of local religious figures and politicians who screened films before they could be played in, in cities, particularly in large cities, but, but really all over. Um, And so apparently in some places they had decided that the revenge ending was not appropriate and should not be shown to the public. And so they went to the film producer and said, you have to change this. And because producers were so eager to get footholds and have their film showed wherever they could, you know, they, they went ahead and made changes. And so there are these two different versions uh, of the film. And I sort of traced that by looking at local reviews, uh, documents from city councils, things like that, looking for the censorship boards, materials, and, and eventually finding those. So the music for it... Um, it's, it's interesting because I don't know exactly always um, which version a reviewer or someone who's recommending music for it was referring to. So in the case that I have, it was unclear sometimes. Um, so in one example, I find suggestions made by film composer Max Winkler, who was a, a big deal film composer and arranger at the time. And he offers suggestions for the film. Um, including cues suggesting uh, certain elements that happen in the plot. And so I could try to piece that together and look at how that compared with both versions of the film um, and, and how it, it lined up to sort of figure out what version of the film he's using. So uh, the pieces that he suggested for some of these um, 
for example, he suggests using a piece called Rosemary in the version of the film in which the woman survives, when which her spirit leaves her body and then goes back into it. Um, and it's likely that this is Edward Elgar's Rosemary from the composer's 1915 revision of a much older dance piece for solo, or I'm sorry, for piano trio. So Rosemary was published in 1915 for use in the theater in a lot of different arrangements. So it would have been known and widely available. So Elgar's piece for Rosemary is titled That's for Remembrance, which of course is quoting Ophelia's mad scene in Hamlet. So it's a work that could certainly be used to indicate the death and presence of a spirit. Of the two possible pieces that I found that could represent this scene, uh, Rosemary and one other one, Rosemary seemed the most likely, both in terms of the title and in terms of the music itself. It is a, a short piece. It's a repeated descending gesture. Um, and then there's sort of a statement of a primary theme. The theme rises. It's metrically displaced and varied in other ways and then returns to uh, a final statement of the original theme. And it's got rolled chords in it, which mimic a glissando and a harp, both of which are signifiers of the spirit and uh, the soul ascending into heaven. Um, and we hear that even in, in spirit films today, this, I, this, you know, these harp glisses moving upwards as the soul leaves the body and things like that. Um, so that's just one example of, of how sort of I, I identified which version of the film the composer might be talking about and what pieces they recommended for it. And there's, there's a lot more that goes on with this. Um, with for, for Ghosts of the Jungle. The hardest thing was that Ghosts of the Jungle is a lost film. We don't actually have a copy of any of the visual materials for it, except for still images taken on set and for publicity. So I had to sort of put those in an order as well and say, oh, this image belongs to this version of the film and this image belongs to a different version of the film. And so it looks like this list of pieces recommended for the film matches up with this image better so I know that's that version of the film. I know that sounds really confusing and complicated, but it was sort of like putting a jigsaw puzzle together with, with pieces of history and with the music trying to figure out what the composers were referring to in the film and how that um, indicated what version they, they had seen. Well, I, one of the things that's interesting both about your answer and, and reading your book is is understanding just how much detective work does go into this kind of scholarship when you're dealing with very incomplete sources all across the board, right? You you don't have a complete score. You just have cue sheets and suggestions. You don't have uh, complete movies. You don't have complete scripts. You don't, you know, you, so you're having to always work from these um, tantalizing clues that you try to pull together enough to give you a sense of the larger work. And, and it seems to me that that was happening in all your case studies, even for films that have uh, survived, you often don't have, you know, there's other information that you don't have complete, even if you can see the film. That is very true. Uh, another part of the puzzle is that sometimes we might know what a particular accompanist used um, in terms of that we have scores or cue sheets that an accompanist has created but we have to go in the opposite direction to try and figure out what film those cues were used for. One of the uh, pieces of research I've done was a case where I found a, a handwritten cue sheet from a cinema accompanist and had to try to figure out what film this was for. And in that case, I was actually able to recreate the cue sheet, match it up with the film so that at some point someone could, you know, perform a recreation of that a hundred years after the film was released or more. Well, um, that does sound like fun, though. So um, it's certainly uh, interesting to very detailed work for sure. Um, so you end the book by looking beyond silent films to see what the legacy was of the kind of sonic signifiers that uh, you've sort of established were part of the spirit films in the silent era. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the long history now or the legacy as you as you hear it in um films that fall into, you know, generally um, a more sort of modern, I guess, version of the spirit film uh, in the sort of uh, hundred years of, of the sound or the talkies. So for that chapter, I looked at 
ghosts or spirits in film from the 1930s when we start to get really big, lavish scores uh, for, for enormous orchestras and how those scores use the same signifiers from the seance, from silent film. Um, so some of this is orchestration and instrumentation, and some of it is the use of, of certain techniques. So we hear the tremolo all the time. The tremolo builds tension. For example, um, in uh, the version of A Christmas Carol from 1935, which was, was really popular, and there are so many versions of A Christmas Carol, I had, I had no idea. There are like hundreds of them. Anyway, so this one from 1935 is called Scrooge, and the one I, uh, one of the things that I saw was that there was lots of tremolo. There was lots of chromaticism indicating sort of this nebulous presence of the ghosts that visit Scrooge, right? That the chromaticism was something exotic, that it was otherworldly. We talk a lot about in music about how chromaticism um, sort of is supposed to evoke the other, right? Often women, often women who are engaged in taboo acts. Salome, Carmen, things like that. But chromaticism is also also became through the silent era and into early talkies a signifier of the supernatural. So we have tremolos, we have we have the um, we have this chromaticism going on. We've got sol ponticello and the strings to make this very eerie sound, and then we've got the stinger, which develops in the in the silent film for spirits as well so we have all of these things building up and creating tension and then we know the spirit is coming but even so when that stinger hits and the spirit arrives poof you know we we jump a little bit but even so these spirits are not really malevolent spirits right they're there to warn scrooge they're there to take care at least in the case of marley's ghost to take care of unfinished earthly business that he needs things he needs to rectify um so we've got these, these themes and textures that, that signify the, uh, the spirit and the appearance of the spirit coming right out of the silent film and right into scores for the talkie. Uh, another film I looked at from, the, from early sound is called The Ghost Goes West, which is a comedy. And this plays into the idea, too, from, from very early on, like we just talked about, that the very earliest spirit films were comedic. They were skeletons dancing or they were, you know, poof, someone appears and startles someone else, or there's a funny element to it somehow. And then the ghost goes west. There is a, a ghost who is attached to a castle. And the castle is bought by a rich American, dismantled and rebuilt uh, in, in the United States, and the ghost goes with it. So the music for the ghost uh, has to reflect the fact that not only the ghost is a ghost and is not malevolent, uh, but is but is in fact trying to be mostly helpful, um, and also the fact that he's displaced from his own location and time. So in this case, there's there's tremolo and there's chromaticism, um, but there's also the use of bagpipes because the ghost is Scottish that are sort of eerie and off in the distance. Um, there's glass breaking again because the ghost bumps into things, uh, you know, and is manipulating things in the real world, just as the accompanist would have been shaking a box of broken glass, or in the seance, glass would have been broken by the, the presence of the, the supposed spirit and, and things like that. So we hear all of those things uh, carrying on in the spirit film. And the spirit film, you know, as I said in the beginning, it, it doesn't it doesn't become the contemporary horror film. It becomes the comedic ghost film. It becomes Topper with you know, mischievous ghosts, or it becomes the romantic ghost who is trying to take care of someone uh, like the movie Ghosts with Demi Moore and, and Patrick Swayze. Well, I, this has all been very interesting. I appreciate you talking about all of this. I think we're sort of coming towards the end of our time together, and I didn't want to, to leave our interview without asking um, what you're working on now. I know you well enough to know you probably have more than one project that you're in the midst of. So so what what are you investigating today? I'm working on a project that looks at the history and the historiography of silent film music how the history of silent film music has been told and communicated, what the gaps in that history are, how to start filling those gaps, 
where to find sources for those gaps and that, that kind of thing. I'm especially looking at women in the silent cinema. I'm, I'm continuing my work on that. And I'm also trying to find information on music and performers in cinemas owned by blacks, by Asians, by um, other minorities, racial minorities in the United States. It's easy to find information on white owned cinema and, and white owned cinema, you know, movie making industry materials. It has been harder to find information on cinemas and music created for those cinemas owned by minorities in part because of systemic racism and sexism. Um, and in part because of the way paper materials where you find this information has been been treated and is um, and does or does not exist in places. Well, the issue of race, of course, is ever present in in scholarship like this, and the silence of the archive is definitely an issue. In fact, you uh, raise that in your book as well, in pointing out that um, the figures in your book are all white because of this this problem of of finding the materials that you need and also the uh, systemic reasons that it was difficult for people from uh, minority communities to break into the movie business, especially uh, before the war. So um, uh, it's great that you're doing that research to help um, deal with that particular lacuna, because that's definitely an issue in all scholarship. I think from the early part of the century, it's very hard to find those, those materials. It is, but it's um, it's rewarding when I do find information, and I'm hoping to bring as much information as I can to light for scholars and for general readers interested in the, the history of film music. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. And uh, just once again, this my name's Kristen Turner. This is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. And I've been talking to Kendra Peston-Leonard, about music for the kingdom of shadows, cinema accompaniment in the age of spiritualism. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.